Now, when I was in my early 20s, I went on a week-long missions trip with about 15 to, to 20 other individuals, and we went abroad, and so we were in an area that most of us had not been before. And it happened to be that since we were there for over a week, we were there on a Sunday. And so the, the team leader of this, of this group had us go to this church. And I believe he had a connection to the pastor or, or some other individuals at the church. But for me, this is my first time in this congregation. And usually I find when I encounter a, a new experience, my, my antennae go up and I become highly analytical. So everything that happens, I'm usually wondering why they do it this way or how this is or if that person thinks this way or that way. And, and so I entered into that Sunday morning uh, being highly analytical and, and somewhat judgmental and trying to kind of feed and figure out what, what, is, what is going on here. And the pastor that morning, he, he was preaching, and I don't even remember what the exact title of his message or, or the topic was, uh, what text he used, but I do remember that I think he was celebrating or getting close to celebrating his 40th wedding anniversary with his wife. And so whether it was the topic of his message or not, there was a number of, of stories and allusions to the fact, and very affirming and certainly appropriate, that his wife had, had greatly enhanced his ministry. And together, the two of them had done far more than he could have imagined each of them doing. Basically, it, what I heard him say was their sum, their marriage total, was a sum that was greater than their individual parts. Now, for me... I remember hearing that message and being a little bit confused because it seemed to say that he was saying there's great ministry benefits to being married. And that was kind of the first time I'd heard that. I knew that there were some obvious benefits to marriage like lifelong companionship and sexual intimacy and the potential of, of raising children. I, I knew that there was a number of benefits in that sense. But this is the first time I kind of heard someone say, you know, actually there might be some better ministry benefits. And it was a little bit hurtful because... I didn't have a wedding ring on my finger, and I greatly wanted to, to minister. I greatly wanted to be obedient to God and do as much as I possibly could, whether that was as a pastor or as a layperson or whatever context. And that was kind of the first time I thought, oh, have I missed something? It, it, do I need to be married in order to minister more effectively? Now, I don't hold any fault to that preacher. As I, as I said, I was highly analytical that day, and he probably did not say those exact words. It might have been the day I was having, and perhaps um, I just heard something that he did not intend. But it makes me think about the thousands of messages that people hear from the church and from teachers, from, church, from churches like Jericho Ridge here. What sort of messages are being sent and how people are interpret, interpreting them and how that may or not be truthful and how it may not, or not be hurtful. And I'll quickly just of of two examples from the last two messages here in our series. Two weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Brad began the series, he spoke on, on the topic of marriage, and his main idea there was that marriage is not designed for personal happiness, it's designed for holiness. It's this understanding that God's intention for marriage is for the husband and the wife to encourage one another towards greater spiritual maturity. But could you not ask the question, as a single person, well, how am I encouraged spiritually if I do not have a marriage partner? Does this mean then as a single person that I only have a certain ceiling of spiritual maturity, but beyond that I have no hope because I don't have a committed lifelong partner who can consistently encourage me to pursue Christ? And what about last week's message? When I, I spoke on, on the idea of selfishness being the biggest danger in a marriage, 
The key understanding being that the relationship between Christ and the church is the key to understanding the relationship between a husband and a wife, that we must serve one another. How does this relate to those who do not have a spouse? Does that mean that they will naturally be more selfish? Do they have a difficulty understanding how Christ and the church, how that operates because they don't have a spouse to relate this message to? I spoke with a friend recently who is married, but he did not get married until he was in his early 40s. And when I asked him about his experience of being single, he told me that being single was his greatest challenge in life. And it did not take him very long to tell me that. He was very clear. It was his greatest life challenge. And his statement reminded me that it's dangerous to transfer my experiences and my feelings on someone who is different than me. Because truth be told, my experiences being single ended when I was 24 and I became married. And that's typically the lens that I look at singleness through, my own experience. And, and we all do this. But being single at the age of 34 is much different than the age of 24. Being a single woman can be very different than being a single man. And being single and desperately wanting to be married looks and feels much, much different than being single and being completely content with that. In other words, singleness is not a label that we can just attach to someone and think we know and experience what they're feeling and what they're going through. It's not only naive to do this, it's insensitive and it's disrespectful to them as well. But it happens and it's painful and it's unfortunate that it happens and it goes against everything that the church is designed to be. Now, I think part of the problem is, is thoughtlessness. It's perhaps an emotional immaturity by people who make those comments. Uh, it can very uh, likely be comments that are trying to be encouraging, but they're just misplaced or those individuals don't listen well. And part of it has to do with theological misinterpretation as well, not understanding what God thinks about the subject, uh, not having a good grasp of what Scripture says about us. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 can, has the potential to help us correct both of these errors. Now, Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, uh, the seventh chapter, this is kind of the chapter on this topic of singleness. But it's a chapter that addresses a number of other topics. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes to this church, and within chapter seven, he talks about what it means to be single. He talks to those who are married. He talks to those who are, are married, but they're looking to get out of the marriage, and he addresses what divorce is about. Uh, he talks to the unmarried person who wants to get married. He becomes even more specific. He talks to people who are widows. He talks to individuals who are married, but they're married to an unbeliever. And so in the span of 40 verses, he talks about a ton of different things to a ton of different adults in different life phases that they find themselves in. So not only is it extremely applicable to pretty much every adult, it's also a bit tricky because we have to remember who he's talking to and understand that he's writing to a church that existed 2,000 years ago in language that's a bit different than we typically use. Now, for all of the inspiring language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5, which is our text for pretty much this, this whole series, uh, he doesn't seem to use great language in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when it comes to marriage. I mean, last week we looked at, at the part where, where Paul is describing the relationship between a husband and a spouse to Christ and the church. And in the same letter to the church at, at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13, he has this poetic, 
poetic passage about what love is. And this is a passage that's used and read many times in weddings. But in this, in this same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he actually says, I'd prefer it. It's probably better for you not to get married so you can avoid all the troubles of marriage. I have not heard that passage read at a wedding ceremony yet. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement. But six chapters later, Paul goes on and on about how love is so wonderful. And we get this sense of the goodness of marriage. So, how can the writer say seemingly two very different things to the same amount of people in a very short amount of time? Well, we're going to find out because Paul has some very specific things to say about the benefits of being single. And this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. And this is from the New Living Translation. I usually read from the NIV, but I think this uh, translation is a little bit easier for us to understand as, as we work through the text this morning. Beginning in, in verse 25, he says, Now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command for the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Now, we're going to pause here. Uh, hopefully many of you are, are hoping that I would pause here and not just kind of glaze over what Paul is talking about here. Paul, it seems to say, I don't have anything to share for you from what the Lord is, t- has, is telling you, uh, but you can trust me on this one. I'm just going to, to speak to you on my own authority. And this can be a little bit troubling when you first look at this. Say, wait a second, this is the word of God we're reading here. Who, who's talking here? This doesn't come from God. What exactly is going on? And within this passage, this is already the third time in chapter 7 that he's qualified what he said. He says at one point, this is the Lord speaking, not I. And then later on, he says, this is I speaking. This command comes from me, not from the Lord. And now here again, uh, he gives a a little bit of a caveat for for what authority he's speaking at. In fact, the end of this chapter, in verse 40, Paul gives his final judgment. And then he says, and I think I'm giving you counsel from God's spirit when I say this. Now, what are we to make of this? Is this a passage we could sort of say, well, we're not exactly sure how authoritative that is, so uh, maybe we just won't follow that verbatim. Well, Paul's being specific here about what commandments are coming directly from Jesus and the ones that have been passed on from Jesus. It's almost like he's, he's quoting Jesus. And earlier in the passage, when he's talking about marriage and about divorce, he's saying these are words that come from the Lord because Jesus spoke specifically about those topics. And in other cases, he would have spoken specifically to individuals who would have shared that with Paul. That, that seems to see, seem to be what the general consensus is among bi- biblical scholars. But on this topic, when he's talking to individuals who are not married, he does not have a direct command that he can look to in Scripture and relay that to his, writer, to his uh, readers. He does not have something that he has received directly from Jesus to pass on. So instead, he says, uh, my authority, remember, it comes from Jesus as, as an apostle, as a scripture that is inspired here, but this is not something that Jesus has already said. So let, let's continue on now in verse 26. Paul says this, because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I am trying to spare you of those problems. Verse 29, 
Let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 25 to 35. And that final verse, verse 35, is, is a great summary statement for that section and really for the entire chapter as a whole. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best. Do whatever in your life is going to best enable you to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And in Paul's mind, singleness may actually be a better marital status to serve the Lord best than being married. And he gives us three reasons for these, and and we're going to put these up on the board, and they should be fairly easy to find there in that passage because he lays them out quite clearly. The first thing that he says comes from verse 26. A singleness is preferable during a crisis. This is what he says. Because of this present crisis, because of these troubles that you are experiencing, it's preferable that you do not get married. Now, Paul doesn't identify what this crisis is. There's a lot of speculation for what it might be, what it might, may not be. But it's important to remember that Paul knows these people. We learn in the book of Acts that he lived in Corinth for at least a year and a half. He would have interacted with these people. And so whatever this crisis is, he's knowledgeable about it. Uh, some people say, well, this is, is probably a, a severe crisis of some sorts. It wouldn't have just affected a few people, but the entire region, like a famine, um, some sort of war perhaps, or, or political upheaval. And, and because of that, he doesn't need to name it, and it it's definitely has an influence on a large amount of people. There's other commentators that say, you know what, historically, we don't have any data about this. We don't know about a war that Corinth was involved. So, so maybe it's something else. Maybe it's not a famine or a natural disaster. We're not quite sure what it is, but in any case, it's a crisis. It's a problem. And Paul's saying, because of this problem, it's better for you not to get married. Now, personally, as I read this, I I think that this crisis is not something that's just a a minor difficulty because there are great advantages to having a marriage partner when you go through a minor difficulty, like some sort of uh, unknown thing coming up or or a sickness or tragedy. It's nice to have someone that you know is with you to help you persevere. But when you talk about a crisis, something that is, is very, very difficult, Paul seems to be talking more about survival instincts. If you're in the midst of a war, a great uncertainty. There are some advantages to not having to think about caring for yourself, but for caring for your spouse as well. So we don't know what the crisis is, but this seems to be Paul's point, is that uh, this has to do with taking care of oneself and not being uh, overwhelmed by having to care for a marriage spouse as well in the time of crisis. 
His second point, the second reasons why he says it's good to remain single comes from verses 29 to 31. He says that the time is short. And later on, he says that this world is is passing away. Paul seems to be saying your marriage, your marriage partner should not be where you put put your, your most treasured hope in. You should not put security alone in marriage. And and we could say the same thing about things like achievements, possessions, money, status. These are all sources of security. And Paul understands that it can be quite tempting for a married person to put their hope, their trust, their security in their husband or their wife. Instead, he says, as followers of Jesus, a command that that extends to, to everyone who chooses to follow Jesus, your greatest hope, your treasure, your faith is to be placed in the new kingdom and the new earth, in the kingdom of God, not in any one person or any one thing. And so he seems to be saying by remaining unmarried, a single person might stand a better chance of not being tempted to place unhealthy security into a marriage partner. But I think I should also add, and Paul does not say this in his text, there is potential for unmarried people to place an unhealthy amount of hope or faith or security in the idea of getting married someday. Now, Paul does not, does not say this, but it goes along with the same thinking here, that we have to be careful as followers of Jesus not to put too much hope and security in something that is not rooted in God's kingdom. His third point, this is his, his last argument here, is that singleness is preferable due to less concerns or distractions, as he says in, in some other translations there. there. Singles have less distractions or less concerns than married people do. And what he is saying here is that family life necessarily fills one's time. And when it's done in a healthy way, that is God-honoring and there's nothing wrong with that. However, there are just some, some simple logistical things that happen when someone is married. You care for your spouse. As we looked at last week's message, when you get married, a, an individual, a, a single person, they exchange their independence for interdependence. And they say, I'm no longer living for myself according to my ways. I'm actually going to serve my spouse. It's that idea of how Christ served the church, and now the husband and the wife are serving each other. And, and that, that's part of the responsibility and the role of what it means to be a godly husband and a godly wife. And Paul's simply saying, uh, for those who are not married, they do not have this responsibility. They do not have uh, this, this management that they need to do of making sure that they care for and minister to their spouse. So, so these are Paul's arguments. Up there, because of crisis, because the time is short, due to these concerns in, in life that, that a spouse will certainly generate on the individual who they are married to. Now, these are all very, very sensible arguments, I think we could say. Whether you are, are divorced, whether you're unmarried and you've never been married, whether you are married, I think you could look at this list, you could look at our, our contextual environment, uh, not even... The, the church at Corinth, and you could say, yep, I agree with these. These make sense. There isn't a ton of pushback. They make good, logical sense. But this list does not necessarily make the single life any easier. And I think that's part of the challenge here in this text, is that Paul's rationale for singleness is extremely practical. He talks about why it's beneficial from a logical standpoint to being single. There there are some advantages here, but Paul doesn't talk much about the desire to be married. He doesn't talk much about what 
life looks like for someone who wants to be married but is not yet married. These very well may be advantages for them, but this chapter feels saturated with logic. It seems like it's a bit empty of emotion. Now, there's an important verse in this chapter that we haven't looked at yet, and and we're going to go there now because I think it's the key to understanding the relationship between the logical arguments that Paul makes about the goodness of being single and the emotion of what this looks like as well. And this is a well-known verse. This is in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. Paul says this, holding himself up as an example. I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Paul calls singleness a gift in this verse. And this has often created confusion, frustration, challenge, and a lot of pain for a number of individuals. Because when we talk about gifts, we usually talk about things that we like. I mean, if we take ourselves out of this text for a moment and we talk about gifts, we usually share about things that that people surprise us with a gift and we were just overwhelmed and, and overjoyed by this gift. We think about getting something for someone that they want. Uh, gifts are usually very positive things that are well-received and we think, great, I got a gift. Whether it was expected or unexpected, this is awesome, I got this gift. But we usually don't talk about a gift in the context of something just being given to someone whether they like it or not. A gift almost shoved down someone's throat. A gift that they have really no choice in receiving or not. That's why this verse can feel very foreign to some singles, not all of them. For singles who would like to get married, I've heard individuals say things like this, well, I never asked for the gift of singleness. I don't want that gift. That's a gift I'd rather have someone else have. I'd like the gift of marriage. And yet, Paul tells the church of Corinth that this is a great gift. He'd wish this gift on everyone, is what he says. And this can create inner conflict for a number of people who are not married. Now, I want to quote Tim Keller here because I think he says this very wisely. He's someone who's uh, much more experienced and smarter than I. And, And this is how he explains how Paul uses the understanding of giftedness in this passage. This is from uh, the book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, in his writings, Paul always uses the word gift to mean an ability that God gives to build others up. Paul is not speaking then of some kind of elusive, stress-free state. The giftness of being single for Paul lay in the freedom it gave him to concentrate on ministry in ways that a married man could not. Paul may very well then have experienced what today we would call an emotional struggle with singleness. He may have wanted to be married. He not only found an ability to live a life of service to God and others in that situation, he discovered and capitalized on the unique features of single life to minister with very great effectiveness. Singleness is a gift, but not necessarily a joy. I think this statement combines the truth of what we see Paul say here in the scripture with the life experiences and the emotion of single people who would like to be married. Singleness, it's a gift, but not always a joy. In other words, a person can have a gift but not be in a constant state of thankfulness for that gift. Think of other gifts that 
that God supplies individuals and he supplies the church with. The gift of service, for example. A great gift, an essential gift. A gift that we are, we are called to, to use and to minister to other people with. But there are some service projects and there are some jobs that are more joyful to be involved in than others. Sometimes service is not done with great joy. It can still be exercised, it can still be used, and it certainly is a gift to those who exercise it, but not always done with joy. The gift of teaching is another great example. I look at our church here at Jericho Ridge, and I think of the people who teach in life group context, who, uh, who teach on Sunday mornings, who teach at Kids at the Ridge, and, I, and I'm thankful for those individuals, and I think there's a lot of work that goes into teaching. Those of you who are teachers, uh, vocationally, you understand the, the job that teaching is. There's, there's preparation, and there's the delivery, and there's the research, and then it's how well it's received and, and applied by, by those who are listening and by students. But it's not always a joy. Sometimes it goes unnoticed. Sometimes it goes without being applied. It's hard work. It can be filled with frustration at times. The gift of shepherding, the gift of pastoring, it's a role that many times is filled with great joy. Pastor Brad and I do not always have great days every day, though. Sometimes it's a gift that has some pain attached to it that is not always joyful, but it's still a gift. And singleness is a gift too, but it's not always a joy. Now, for some, this lasts for a particular season in their life. For others, it extends much further than that. For some, it certainly is a joy. For others, it's more of a challenge. But like every gift from God, it's designed to feed the church and to minister to the church and to reflect the grace and mercy of God. Sadly, though, Some people lack the sensitivity and the wisdom to know how to care for individuals who are single and would greatly like to be married. And the usual blunder, as I stated earlier, is taking personal experiences and and ministering in that way of saying, I know what it's like, when maybe they don't know what it's like. And to attach a label and to think that that somehow uh, you are helping an individual when very well you may be offending them. There's a great article I read earlier this week uh, by an author named Paige Benton Brown, a single woman who wrote an article called Singled Out by God for Good. And she points out how many comments, as well-intentioned as they may have been, can be extremely hurtful. And they can be actually quite theologically incorrect. I'll give you some examples. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, He'll bring someone special into your life, as though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. Or a critique, which I'm sure that individuals love to hear. You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do His work, of which marriage must be no part. And finally, before you marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Now, I doubt, I doubt that people have said these words, maybe some have, I doubt that some people have have said these words with the intention to hurt, with the intention to, to make life more difficult for those who are listening. But these are words that can sting. These are words that, have stung. These are words that can drive a wedge between those who are married 
and those who are single and would like to be married. These are the words that have the potential to be divisive and to make the gift of singleness far less joyful than it may have been, which goes completely against God's design for gifts, to build the church, to serve one another, to minister to everyone. And each part of the body is essential. The Apostle Paul talks about this later in this, in this same letter to the church of Corinth in, in chapter 12. He, he, he talks about how the church, the body of Christ, has different body parts. Each part serves a specific function. And no one part can say to the others, well, my role is more important than you. You are not as significant or as helpful as another body part. Every part is essential. Every part needs to be unified. Now, I was thinking, I, I don't even want to imagine what Jericho Ridge Community Church would be like without the presence and the ministry of the single adults that we have here. Whether they are at, their uh, mentality and, and their state is one of being joyful about their gift of singleness or whether it's much more difficult for them. I, I think about the, the, the individuals here and, and how they serve with passion and dedication, how they're excellent teachers of the word, how they minister to, to our children and to our youth and to our adults, how they use their energy and their financial resources, and their time, and their talents. They've applied singleness as a gift, even though it may not always feel to them like it is a gift. And as a member of this church, I'm incredibly thankful for the ministry that they serve us with. Because singleness is a gift, but it's not necessarily a joy. How then do unmarried Christians grappled with the disappointment of being single which some experience as a consistent challenge in their lives. Well, I think that a starting point is to realize that for some, this is not simply a disappointment. It's actually a type of suffering. It can be extremely painful. I once heard a wise person compare singleness to childlessness. There are some couples who do not have children, either by choice or through other means, that they do not have children. And while it may be somewhat disappointing to them, some couples are okay with this. It does not greatly impact their satisfaction level in life. But there's other married couples who desperately want to have children. They want to be parents so, so badly. And up to this point in their life, they do not have any children. The desire of their heart does not match the reality of their lives. And it's painful. I think this is how some single people who wish to be married feel. The desire of their heart does not match the reality of their life. Now, the Bible does not give us very simple and easy-to-read arguments or an understanding for why we suffer, for about the problem of pain. In fact, we're, we're told that we should expect tribulation. As followers of Jesus, we should not be surprised when we endure difficult times, when there are valleys, when there is suffering and hardship. The Apostle Paul, again, is a great example of this. He knew this truth well. And in the book of Acts, while traveling from city to city and suffering various challenges and tribulations, he said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's to be expected. And because of that, we need to minister to one another, and we need to help each other. With respect to the pain of singleness, Paige Benton Brown's perspective is truly inspiring. This is what she says. 
Accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given to our lists of why, but rather on celebration of the life He has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is His best for me. This is a message that's true not just for singles, but for everyone who experiences suffering. And I wish I had her perspective on life when I interact with the difficulties in my life. Her words are true. God is so abundantly good, but this truth alone does not remove the pain of the difficulty. And as the body of Christ, we're called to to care and to minister to one another. In times of great joy, we are told to rejoice with those who rejoice. In times of difficulty and pain, we're called to suffer and to mourn with those who go through hardships. We're a body. When each body part feels something, the other body responds. Singleness is a gift, but not necessarily a joy. For those of you who are single, may you be encouraged to use your gift even when it feels burdensome. For those of you who are married, may you have an increased awareness of the gift and the burden that singleness can sometimes carry. But may we all remember that God has arranged the parts in this body, His church, just as He wanted them to be. Let's pray. Lord God, the truth of Your Word is that Your church is a body. And you have arranged each part with a purpose and with a plan. And I pray, God, that that as the body of Christ, we would minister one to another, that we would rejoice with one another, that we would mourn with those who mourn. Through it all, Lord, that it would encourage us for a greater ministry. Lord, I thank you for the gifts that you have bestowed on this church. I thank you for the individuals who use their gifts well. I thank you for people, Lord, that even though it might be a time in their life where they do not love the gift that you've entrusted them with, uh, whether it's with administration or with teaching or service or singleness or compassion, God, I I pray that you would encourage them today and that they would be motivated to serve the church, to serve your people. Thank you for the truth of your word this morning, God. May we go from this place inspired to be obedient to you. Amen.